Well, hello, everybody. This is Randy Wooten, CEO of Maxio and your host of SaaS Expert Voices, the podcast that brings SaaS experts to you to help us understand what's happening today and what the trends are for tomorrow. Today, I'm joined by John Cochran, our VP of Strategy. I think of him as our SEAL Team 6 at Maxio. He's the guy, he and his team take on the hardest, scariest, biggest projects we have and always brings them across the finish line. And John uh, is the co-author of our Maxio Institute Growth Report, which we're going to get into in just a second. And what we want to do today is talk about the Maxio Institute Report. It's got some really interesting insights for SaaS experts. Uh, number two is talk about those specific insights and then make sure you have access to the to the report. But the second part of the conversation, we really want to talk about the initiative, the Ma Maxio Institute Initiative, and what it took to get this report out. What are some of the lessons learned? And then we'll close with What's next for the Institute? I think this is such an interesting play that everyone's trying to do. Uh, we want to help share knowledge in terms of what we've learned to date. But John, welcome. Randy, thanks for having me on. <laughs> Honored to be here. <laughs> maybe maybe before we jump into that, I didn't give much more background other than your SEAL Team 6, but do you want to talk a little bit about your background? Because I think it's interesting and relevant to your expertise that you were able to bring to the data set. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, thanks for that. My my background, I started as a, as an accountant, still a CPA today, uh, was working my way up through the ranks before I uh, had an opportunity to, to come over to Maxio. So the what I was doing before I got here was was really helping was working at fast growing tech companies in the finance department and trying to uh, manage billing, collections, reporting. And then, you know, report up to the investors and executives. How's our business doing? Are we doing good? Are we doing bad? And then, of course, always trying to figure out, are we good, bad relative to our own metrics, to other people's metrics? So uh, a lot of what we're doing at Maxio is helping people with solutions to all the old problems I was having when I was actually, you know, sitting in the, in the seat of the finance department. Uh, but now at Maxio, uh, you know, started in our product department and like you were saying, now working in strategy department, taking on different things that happen all the time whenever you're part of a fast growing business. Yeah, I mean, I think really bringing some discipline to the process, you help spearhead our payments module, for example, and then uh, really this Maxio Institute report idea started over a year ago. And I think one of the fundamental assumptions of Battery when they brought the two companies together was the data that Maxio has, the $15 billion of billing and invoicing data flowing across the platform is gold. And the opportunity is how do we take that data and present it in ways, meaningful ways to the broader community to help them know what's going on. And so with the report that came out, uh, John, this is the fourth iteration. What is the report? What have we, what are the key insights for this cycle? And how is that those insights involved over the past year? Yeah, yeah. There's a lot to unpack there. Uh, I'll I'll take a step back about you know what what are we trying to do at the institute uh, first and foremost. I'll go back to my time at as uh, when I was sitting in the the finance department. Uh, many times when we would get to say our quarterly annual reporting, what we would do is we would go seek out the best industry benchmark at the time. Now, rewind five ten years. Uh, you know, KeyBank was one of the the premier people who really started putting the first benchmarks out there. So they would reach out to a number of different companies say, hey, what's your ARR growth? What's your CAC? You know, what's your gross margin? Stuff like that. And they would compile it and send it out and it was gold. Everyone would go to that report and then you'd plot yourself against the data that had been compiled via a survey. You know, depending on how many people responded, maybe you had 50, maybe you had a couple hundred, uh, but that was the best that there was. And that's really kind of been the standard up until recently. 
if you're a publicly traded company, there's a plethora of information that you can just aggregate, benchmark. There are lots of analysts that that's what they do all day, every day. But when you look at the private markets, there's really nothing equivalent there. Right. So to your to to the point that you just made, you know, one of the unique things at Maxio is we've got all this data flowing through our platform all the time, constantly. People are running all of their billing, invoicing uh, data through our platform, about $15 billion a year. We went, what if we could take that data and do something similar to these survey-based benchmarks, but but do it with real live customer data? So we don't have to, you know, you're, you're looking at true data. It's not somebody's interpretation of their own data or the best case, but that's what we're trying to do is provide real industry benchmarks and insights for the private markets that previously you can never get your hands on and, and put that in a way that other people can understand, hey, how does my business stack up relative to other people that are like me? Yeah, and I think just building on that, it's also timely. Like the other thing you find sometimes with surveys is people start taking the surveys at the end of December, say, hey, we're gonna launch our new benchmark survey. We'll give you a copy of that. If you fill out your information, it takes them three or four months to gather all that data and then publish it. And so you're dealing with data that may be five, six months late or delayed from when it actually was meaningful, which is help me understand what happened in fiscal year 23 as I go into fiscal year 24. So I know we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to try to get the data out uh, as quickly as possible and made significant improvements in the the time to deliver over the last four quarters. Yeah, that's one thing we, we've, to your point, yeah, we worked really hard to try to make sure that we can get the data out there quickly and most importantly, accurately, so that everybody has a solid data set to look at. But uh, with our most recent report, we, we were able to do that by middle of January. So our target is roughly two weeks. Yeah. And following our, the end of a quarter, we want to get it out there. And our first report was something like 67 days, wasn't it? It was a it was a different uh, dynamic on that front. Um, and then I think the, to your other point, look, I've been in SAS for 20 something years and KeyBank was the seminal report. And there have been other surveys that have been published as well. And people talking about the private markets, just super hard to get accurate data. So having that billing and invoicing actual data makes a huge difference. And I, I, th- I would say for us, it, it's not about replacing surveys. It's about augmenting and complementing surveys because the surveys Definitely. is going to have a lot more qualitative input. So I, I don't think this is the sine qua non, but it's certainly a, a tool that you can use as a CEO, CFO, or an investor to help understand where you're doing, where you are, and period, new paragraph. I think the other thing the surveys are challenged with is the end. How many customers can they aggregate into specific segments so there's meaningful insights? And I think that is another thing that we were able to benefit from of having 2,300 customers is there is a meaningful end at different slices of the data. Yeah. And that's one thing we're always looking at, to your point. Yeah, we're, we're looking at 23, 2,500 different customers, depending on the type of analysis we're trying to do, uh, you know, that, that end will get smaller. Yep. But we try to make sure that it's, you know, statistically significant. So right. we're not going to give you a, a benchmark of, say, three companies. There's, you know, typically a healthy population within there. And when people, if they download the report, we'll include the link to the report in the show notes. You can also go to our website and look under resources at maxio.com to get the report. There's a whole bunch of explanation with regards to the methodology. uh, And so even the data nerds out there should feel comfortable in terms of the assumptions we're using and the way we built the models. So that's it. So that's the Maxio Institute report. What were some of the key insights from this version of it that are new and different from previous editions? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, 
taking a step back, one of the things that's been really hard, uh, you know, this report looks at the last eight quarters. But if you would say, go back even further, last 12 quarters, ever since 2021, there has been really, this has been an unprecedented time in the market. And people have just been trying to figure out what is normal? What isn't normal? Is this the new normal? Uh, and depending on if we're talking about now versus, uh, you know, 12 months ago, those answers would have been different. Yeah. But everybody's been trying to catch up and, and respond quickly to the changes in the market. What we've seen in our most recent report is, you know, and this is similar to some of the findings that we had in the last report, but we focus on B2B businesses in this analysis. And what we've shown over the last eight quarters is those businesses have proven resilient. B2B businesses kind of across the board have continued growing. Now, those growth rates have varied tremendously over the past eight quarters. However, when we look at 2023 relative to 2022, it does appear the the one thing that appears to be settling in is we've returned to normal or more normalized growth rates. And then when we take a, a step out broader, that seems to be matching what's happening in the, in the broader economy as a whole. When you look at what the Federal Reserve is doing with interest rates and all the different macroeconomic trends that are going on right now, it appears like normalized growth is starting to come back. Uh, and that's one of the most, the biggest findings. So to that point, what would be a normal growth rate then? So we had that huge spike. We saw that in our Q2 2022 data. How, how are we seeing it kind of flatline towards a, a, to the mean? Yeah, the average the average growth rate um, in in the most recent, really throughout twenty twenty three, was about fifteen percent. Yeah, it was the average annualized growth rate that we observed for uh, businesses. Some fluctuation depending on the size of your business, but fifteen percent. And I think for CEOs and CFOs, again, the thing that was great for us this cycle was we had this data to help inform our budgeting with our board, and we could say, hey, we're dependent upon the broader SaaS market. How's the SaaS market grown? How is our growth relative to that? Because success is about taking share. Are we growing faster than the market? Are we growing uh, slower than the market? And so it, having data like that, I think, really helps everyone uh, sort of be aligned at the starting point. And then you can say, well, we're going to grow faster than the market. Here are the set of bets that have to play out. And this is the um, assumptions that have to be true. So I think it really helps lay the table. So we have the overall growth rate across all segments around 15%. I think the other push that we got from, we knew it, it was just super hard to do, was by industry. And that people were like, look, SaaS, some people call it a vertical, but really I think of myself as a vertical play. I sell B2B software to manufacturing or retail or or marketing or sales. What did we see there? Because I think there's some really interesting insights in terms of the different growth rates by industry segment. Yeah, we uh, we could probably talk on that topic for, uh, you know, more than the time that we have allotted here. But I, I think that that is one of the new things that we added in this report versus our prior three reports is we broke it down by industry. Uh, and it really depends on which year you're looking at. But um, some of the notable trends that we saw by industry is, you know, the, the impact from the pandemic is it's not over yet. Uh, there are still certain industries that have that are still feeling the, say, the highs from that, or they've come off, you know, they're, they're very much off the highs and now at the lows. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll pull out one that was uh, the best year-over-year improvement, and that was the companies, the B2B businesses serving the restaurant, hospitality, and, and leisure industry. And I know, you know, when I was thinking of that, it, it felt like everybody was on vacation last year, but it yeah. turns out everybody's still on vacation yeah. and spending all of that money that they weren't able to spend. Yeah. Which was totally, I wasn't expecting to see that when yeah. I looked at the data because... 
you know, maybe it's the phase of life I'm in, but, but when we actually looked at it and we said, well, when was the peak of COVID cases? Yeah. It was actually early 2022. Yeah. So when you look at it that way, you're going, oh my goodness. Okay. Revenge travel is still strong, yeah. still here to stay, and people are, are itching to get out. Yeah, well, you did have a new baby over the last year, so your <laughs> life is over. You're yeah, no longer the <laughs> you know, the target market. There's no great travel coming to my life anytime <laughs> in the near future. I mean, maybe some people are able to do it, but that's, uh, I don't know if I have the mental fortitude there. Yeah, well, congratulations again on your second child. So what about like marketing and sales? I know when we were kind of sharing a coffee and talking about the results, the marketing and sales tech where I spent 20 years, very, very different growth rates than retail and luxury. What what do you take away from that? Yeah. And, you know, Randy, I'll be interested in your take on this, too, because the one thing that we've seen in marketing and sales, and I think for all of our marketing and sales friends on the, uh, you know, on the podcast or listening to this can appreciate there are a lot of tools out there. When we look when we look at our own spend at Maxio or even not even Maxio, if I look at the last few uh, companies I'd been at, a lot of our software internal OpEx spend is on sales and marketing tools. And it's becoming increasingly competitive out there. And that's what we saw in Q4 is there was really a, a decline in the growth rates down to the single digits. You know, they finished the year at 4% annualized growth across the board, which is well below our benchmark that we were talking about at 15%. I think it's tough to be in that industry right now. Totally. It's why I jumped from marketing and sales tech to CFO tech. Because in fact, to your point, there's this great guy out there called the chief marketer that does a report on terms of MarTech. And he has this a Cambrian explosion diagram that shows how many vendors are in that space. And it's north of 10,000 now, probably $12,000, excuse me, 12,000, 15,000 vendors. They are all competing for the same dollars. And so I think, and the other key part, like with sales tech, and I was at Seismic for a while selling sales tech, is usually the CRO is able to say, I need this tech, it's going to help me increase sales, so I'm going to approve it. And the CFO says, okay, (laughs) right? So there is probably more flexibility for a CRO to say, no, I need my sales force, I want my gong, I want my clarity, because that's going to make my team more efficient, I'm able to deliver the quota. I think marketing, you have more of this dynamic playing out now in terms of, look, if we're in a B2B SaaS recession, so if you're trying to sell as a marketer other B2B tech companies, uh, what is truly the core set of technology you need versus nice to have? And one of the big challenges with marketing, you have all these different silos. You have different functions like SEM, SEO, you've got PR, et cetera. Each one of them has a thousand technologies that could support it. And so the CMO, all the CMOs I talk to struggle about thinking about how do you bring those different pieces together? Which one are you going to invest in? And you want to cover your bets. So you invest in a whole bunch. When you had money from VCs to drive go to market, as that money started to dry up and people said, extend your runway. CFOs go to the CMOs and say, yo, what is the core thing you need? You need your email technology and you need to be plugged in B2B to LinkedIn. Everything else, punt. I mean, maybe marketing attribution, but I I don't know if you have any thoughts of your own experience in terms of aspirin versus vitamin dynamic playing out for MarTech or other industries. No, I, I I think it's tough. And I also think the pace of innovation is, is just rapid in that in that segment in particular, you know, you think of the the impact of AI. And I think one of the things that we saw in our Institute data is, you know, when you take yourself out of the 15% growth rate, uh, you know, which companies are really the top percentile. Right. And I think that the default gut that everybody's saying in the market right now is, you know, AI, uh, AI is at the top. But when, when we looked at it, you know, a lot of the times there's, uh, it's actually the companies who have a real focus on the vertical 
industry. They really have a niche play. Right. But but bringing back to kind of AIs, you think of the industries that have been impacted the most, and I think sales and marketing tech. Uh, there's just a much there's a clear connection between how AI can say enhance those tools relative to say what they were before. I mean, Randy, yeah. I'll, I'll use you as an example. Yeah. Your new favorite, you know, whenever we're having meetings in our company, your new favorite thing <laughs> is the AI summary that Zoom sends out at the end of the meeting. That's and right. you just say, boop, here's a copy of all of our notes that we just had in the prior meeting. Yeah. And all the follow-up action Take items. those actions. No, nope. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. right, right. no note-taking required. Yep. The AI does it for you. Yep. Now we just need an AI system that captures those action items and then pings you. Hey, how are we doing on this? How are we doing on this? <laughs> yeah, the reminder, follow-up. I'm sure that's uh, that's on the roadmap. That'll be your worst nightmare. Um, <laughs> so, so great. So we talked... Uh, we talked broadly about growth rates. We talked about being able to layer in the industry specific, um, and we'll continue to dig on that. One of the things that we had illuminated in our earlier reports was the difference in terms of size. So companies that are million bucks or higher, and there seems to be this really interesting dynamic that continues to play out that companies that are under a million dollars, which is almost counterintuitive, are struggling. How? What's your thought there? You've been wrestling with it for a year. What is your latest insight? Yeah, so this is interesting. We we were uh, this is something that I you know I talked about with TechCrunch the other day, and um, one of the things when we first did our number crunching here, and we looked at this, and we went, "What is going on in the zero to one million cohort?" Yeah. Like maybe the way that we're doing our analysis is wrong. That was my first gut reaction, and then when we took a step back, we went you know, double checked our formulas, double checked the way we were segmenting the data. And we went, no, there, there's something to be said and something unique going on uh, in this under 1 million segment of the market. And so what we did is we went one, we went further. Uh, it didn't just look at, say, the size of the company and, and annualized billings. We actually looked at kind of two, one of the unique things that we can do at the Institute is we can look at their go-to-market, like how they build their customers through the platform. And we can really segment it into two, two areas. Companies who have a go-to-market motion, that's more consumption driven and companies who have say more sales negotiated contracts we call subscription invoicing where you have a 12 month agreement you know what the billing terms are going to be and that's when we look at the under 1 million segment in particular there's a huge difference in growth rates between those two cohorts and what that has led us to believe uh, or at least what the data is telling us is for companies where uh, your annualized billings on our platform are under a million dollars. If you're a consumption-oriented company, your growth rates are just way, way lower than everybody else to the tune of like you're you're just about breaking. You might not be growing at all. It's like 0% growth over the last eight quarters. And do you think this is because with a usage-based model or a consumption-based model, often those contracts are monthly. And so you have people that are sort of checking in, checking out and versus the sales led model where you lock someone in for a year, it's less volatile. And so for the early stage companies that are uh, sort of they're moving like hamsters, right, they're running fast or getting people up and going. They're also have churn going on the other side and the churn impact on a consumption consumption based model is not more dramatic, but you sort of feel it in more uh, sooner than in the sales led motion. Yeah, it's, it, yeah, could be related to churn. The takeaway that we really have in this is if you want to, say, reach escape velocity in 1 million, you need somebody who's going to pay the bills predictably. Right. And you think of, there's been a lot of noise in the market about, well, you know, PLG and, you know, get your thing in the hands of consumers for free. And then, you know, they're going to just like use your product and you're going to go to the moon. 
And our data says that's not true when you're under a million dollars. You might be one of the unique, you know, companies that can go, you know, viral and and you get that adoption and you do go to the moon because we, you know, there's some really valuable ways to to do that from uh, finding new users. But if you're not one of those companies, our data is showing you're struggling. Yeah. And yeah. if you want to make escape velocity, you need a different. You need somebody who's going to pay the bills. You need yeah. predictable invoicing and. In, in, and what's interesting is, is that was the core. I mean, people talk about SaaS being the, the, the business model. It's really not. SaaS is the distribution of the software model. The business model is paid up front. And you spend all this money to acquire customers. and But ideally, you get paid within 30 to 60 days. So you're, it's a cash management issue versus the yeah. usage consumption-based model. The trade-off is, hey, you're probably charging fewer dollars tied to usage, but you're not getting that commitment up front. You're not getting the cash. So it's almost like a cash management issue. You need customers who are paying you up front that you can rely on, that you're going to build that cohort. In addition to having the PLG motion spinning as well. Right. Yeah. No, it's, um, yeah, I think cash management is absolutely critical for these early stage businesses. Yeah. And that's uh, that's a lot of, one of the other things that we looked at here was you know, what you need to do kind of as an early getting to the next successive stage of growth as a company just gets harder. Yeah. You know, getting to what, one of the things that we looked at was how many companies are, you know, over a certain size. And the thing that we looked at is we went to the Bureau of Labor Statistics and we just pulled up, you know, the number of employees, you know, if you're a business that wants to have 10 or more employees, well, there, when you look at all the active businesses in the U S right now, only 10% of businesses have more than 10% of employees. Yeah. It just gets successively harder as you go to get to the next milestone. So, you know, cash management. Yeah, we talk about that breakthrough at those different points. People talk about the valley of death and you have the kind of this valley of death after a million bucks and then you get to 10 million bucks and you start to move it in that next expansion growth stage. Can you get to 30 million? I think another real inflection points at 50 million and then probably 100 million. And each of those, some data yeah. point, and I can share it in the show notes, it's like only point. Zero zero one percent of all SaaS companies get to fifty million bucks. That means, right, like ninety eight percent, ninety nine percent of the companies don't. And so, I think having your go to market motion, your monetization strategy tuned for where you are in on that maturity curve of growth maturity is a is a is a corporate. Uh, priority. It's it, it's got to be one of your core strategies. It's not just the product you're building and who you're selling it to. It's how you're monetizing them. Yeah. No, that's all of that is critical. <laughs> well, great. Well, let's do this, John. I, I think we've done a great job talking about what the Max U Institute is, some of the cool insights. Obviously, the report, I don't know, it's 40 or 50 pages. There's a lot of great information in there. The other thing I was really impressed by what you and uh, Hillary did was you included some of these other references to broader trends to try to contextualize our results within, like what's going on with the interest rates and what's going on with these other components, the Bureau of Labor. So you've you've made it easy for people to have the broader context uh, around these results. So let's back up. So in terms of putting this together, so one of the reasons I joined the company was being a system of record, having this data and having seen this played out before at other companies where if you can move from being a workflow automation to an insight engine where you can take that data and can convert it into insights. You add an enormous amount of value for your customers and prospects um, and just your ability to, 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 to compete in the marketplace. 
as you think about your journey with it, because this was your first time doing something like this, like what were some of the big lessons learned? Like if you were to tell someone else who's sitting on a data set of gold and they're like, gosh, I want to convert this into insights. I want to be driving thought leadership and being picked up by TechCrunch. Like what, what are some of the lessons? It's a great question. Uh, I mean, it, first of all, it starts with your team, right? Yeah. You know, you, you need people who can help you out along the way, right? So, you know, uh, we've had a lot of people who have helped us compile the data. Uh, you know, my co-author on this, Hillary, she has been been immensely helpful. So, you know, finding finding somebody uh, who can help you brainstorm, figure out what's working, what's not working. You know, that's absolutely key. The other thing is, you need to think about your really how reliable are your systems? Can you can you consistently go and pull data? Like, have you architected your platform in a way where you can? pull out the same metric over and over and over again and do that in a way that can say be aggregated, anonymized. That's one of the things that we are, you know, like you were saying, Randy, this is a system of record for over, you know, 15 billion of invoicing, highly, highly sensitive, confidential data that we take very seriously. So I, I think having a reliable data source and having kind of a, a methodology and a strategy for how you aggregate uh, and analyze that um, is super important. And then I think the other thing is this was, you know, one of the first times that we had done this. So behind the scenes, we also talked to a lot of the people who had been there and done that. You know, we talked to a, a number of different data scientists, one in particular from, you know, your past, uh, Randy, uh, Young Ben, shout out if you're listening to the podcast here. But he's been absolutely instrumental in helping us think through, you know, these type of insights would be, you know, beneficial. This has worked whenever we were doing this, you know, in the past at Microsoft. This is how we thought about it. So having having somebody who had been there and done that who can be your advocate and also show you some of the ropes has been in, really helpful for us. So I would, you know, if I had to recap it, I would be like, you know, build a great team, make sure that you have really great data that you can access on a regular basis. That can be surprisingly hard. And then, you know, talk to somebody who had been there and done that and who has done this well in the past. I think you'll find that the community is quite generous with their thoughts and their insights and and sharing that because you know, all the people who love number crunching and data crunching, you know, it's fun. This stuff is fun too, to be able to share and analyze. Yeah. For data nerds. So totally. Um, (laughs) so we, we know what you are, but I think the, um, things I'd offer to that uh, on the data piece is around how, how your data is structured and what your data architecture is. Cause if one of the things I remember was I tried to do this, we did this at, uh, Atlas and Yun Bin Sung, ran the Atlas Institute. And this was many years ago. And it was one of our best marketing vehicles ever. And we had, at that time, it was third-party ad-serving data that we could report on and help inform early. This is like 1999, 2000, 2001, is really help inform the, the burgeoning online advertising world that was just starting to figure out how to do targeting. We did this again at Rocket Fuel, where I was public company CEO, because it, one of the first gen AI companies, we had an enormous amount of data that we were cranking a billion bid transactions a day. So you have to have a corp, you have to have enough data. You have to have a corpus of data. And then you got to have data scientists, people who have the capability and background. Uh, so I went to my next company, Percolate, and I said, we're going to do this again. We're going to have the Percolate Institute. And we went in and, um, I was all, you know, banging drums around it. And, and what we realized was, no, no, the data wasn't structured in a way. The content data wasn't structured in a way that we could make sense of it in a meaningful and regular way. And I was like, no, we got to be able to do it. And, and they're like, no, no, it's unstructured data. And so I think the thing that really helped this time as we came to Maxio was we did a proof of concept. We did a proof of concept. And we said, if we want to go do this, 
what is this, what does it require? Is our data structured appropriately? And and before we put an enormous amount of effort against it, we kind of had a come to Jesus moment around, like, we think this can work or it can't work. And I think that's another, for me, one of these lessons learned and why are you in the strategy role makes a lot of sense is you're out there helping us with our Horizon 3 and Horizon 2 initiatives where we're just trying to figure out what's possible and have the appropriate level of investment aligned with getting us insights in terms of, yeah, that's something we can do. And there's a set of things we won't share on this podcast that you and I have worked <laughs> on where we've been like, yeah, nope, that's not going to work. But this Maxio Institute, hiring someone like Yan Sung, having him help consult, determine if the proof of concept was going to uh, be viable before we really put energy behind it, I think would be another another lesson learned I'd offer. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's been, a, it's been a fun journey, but yeah, it has been a long one and there have been many steps along the way. Yeah. Uh, I think one final thing I would, uh, you know, advise people who want to do this was, would just be start small. Yeah. You know, I I, actually, it it feels like it had been a long time ago. I I had forgotten about our proof of concept here, right? But, but we also, you know, we did the proof of concept and then this is our fourth report. Yes. And we built off each one and each report has a little bit more. Yep. Uh, and so I think it's totally fine to start small, start with one, you know, one metric that you're trying to say benchmark yeah. and just start there and see what you can do with it. Awesome. That's a great segue to the next part of the conversation. So what's next? We've done this four times. We've learned a bunch. We've layered in different views as we talked about this one. The big one for me was around the industry analysis. Uh, we have size, we have funding stage, we have location, we have go to market models. What are the questions you're hearing from people who are reviewing the report and saying, gosh, I wish you could do this that you have on your list to consider for the next one? Yeah, I think it. I think we're in a really fun um, and pivotal place where we're no longer at the point where we're just starting small and going, you know, what's our one benchmark? We now can say, you know, we could go 10 different directions with this thing because we, we've got our methodology, got our data down now. I think there are probably two areas that we're going to explore um, more in depth as we go forward. One is is deepening our industry analysis. That was a really, uh, you know, we've only scratched the surface with the industry insights that we can provide. So I would love to go deeper there in future future analyses where say we provide a, a double click on say the restaurant, hospitality and leisure industry where we have a subsection for that group in particular. Uh, the other piece that we had actually done in prior reports that we excluded from this report really just, you know, for, for the purpose of getting it out quickly, but we've got a lot of data on telling you explicitly who, you know, what does it take to be the best and what does it take to be the best within the, you know, a given industry in tech. And so if we can couple say the quartile analyses with the industries, I think that's going to produce a lot of data that's very actionable for people within their, you know, their cohort based on billing size industry and percent and, uh, and the quartile. And so I think there's, you know, that in and of itself could produce, say, you know, triple the size of our report alone. But those will be the two areas that we're looking to to expand on uh, throughout the rest of this year. Great. The, the other one, which I've been excited about the traction you've made and love to hear your thoughts for going forward is the partnership we have with Ray Reich and Benchmarket and this idea of complementary information. I know we, when we did our webinar, for example, we had Ray Reich there and then there's a set of reports, surveys that Ray is producing with his company and we're dovetailing with it. How, how have you seen that play out and how do you think that we, we're just going to continue going forward there or connect with other surveys or how do you think about that? 
Yeah, no, I mean, Ray has been a great partner to us. And to your point that you made at the beginning of the podcast, Randy, you know, this this report uh, is data backed, but it, it's really focused on growth, you know, top line growth uh, through the lens of, of billings on the platform. Ray's got a lot of really great insight when it comes to all the other metrics that you cared about as a business. So when you think about your efficiency metrics, your CAC to LTV ratios, you know, I'm sure Ray would correct me and say CAC to LTV is so last year, John, there's so many other metrics that really matter this year. We uh, do view this as complimentary, you know, a better together story. And so I, uh, we just did a a podcast or a webinar with Ray recently where we were able to combine the data that we were seeing from the Institute and correlate that to what he had with some of his work with Benchmark. So uh, I think everybody who's listening now can expect more to come there. Uh, and some more partnerships. Uh, also, I'd throw it out there for anybody who's listening. If you have similar benchmarking or anything like that, and uh, you have ideas on how you could help partner with us, you know, we, we'd be open for a conversation. Yeah, I think this is one of these agency effect things in terms of like what we're trying to do is help the SaaS industry get better through better insights. And for CEOs like me, who are freaked about what's unfolding day to day and how are we going to continue to grow in this world and deliver shareholder value, being able to share insights that create a collective understanding of reality uh, is better for everyone. So yeah, we'll continue to invest in it. I'm super excited for all the work you've done and grateful, John, to you and Hillary for the work that you do. Uh, I know how hard it is to get to where we've been today and excited about where we're going tomorrow. Yeah, no, it's fun fun to pull together. I'm glad we can pull together useful insights for, uh, for not only you, Randy, but the broader industry. <laughs> well, with that, thanks, John. Have a great day. Yeah, until next time. <laughs>